This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, it's a privilege to join you again. Believe it or not, I was here, but it was about nine years ago, if memory serves, and it's a pleasure to be back. I've been asked to say something about James 2 and Romans 3. That is, two passages which, on the face of it, are in flat-out contradiction. And they give us an insight into what the Bible says about faith. I'm going to begin by reading Romans 3, 27 to 31. A little later on, we'll be reading part of Romans 4. And then James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. You might want to stick your finger in both passages. As I read it, look for the bits that are flat-out contradictions, apparently. Hear then what the Apostle Paul says. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. James 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister who is without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the de de demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our father Abraham? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So reads the word of God. One of the striking realities that faces anyone attempting to do evangelism in a contemporary university setting 
or on the streets of any of America's cities is the fact that the limited religious vocabulary of the unconverted in every case means something different from what the biblically informed mean. God, spirit, faith, truth, saved, life, suffering. In every single case, what is meant by those words in the larger secular culture in which we live and what Christians mean by them, especially if they've been Christians for a while and have adopted biblical definitions, is different. This makes communication rather difficult. Let's take the word faith. What does faith mean in much of Western culture? As far as I can see, it means one of two things. It's sometimes a synonym for religion. There are many religions. There are many faiths. I don't think the Bible ever uses the word faith that way. Once pretty close in James, but never quite bang on that way. More commonly, faith means something like personal, subjective, religious commitment. I want all those words in there. Personal, subjective, religious commitment. It's personal. You have your faith. I have my faith. It's got nothing to do with public truth. It's a, it's a commitment. I take it on faith. Do, 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 do you see? And, and that's why we're not supposed to talk about religious matters because they're personal. They're subjective. You've got your faith and I've got my faith. I'm quite a spiritual person, you know. I, I, I wear a special bracelet with crystals on it because I'm a spiritual person. That's my faith. If you've got your faith and you find that Jesus helps you, well, God bless you. I've got my faith. You've got your faith. It's a personal, subjective, religious commitment. Isn't that the way it's used? By contrast, in the Bible, faith never means either of these things, certainly never the second. So when Christians insist on the importance of faith, what are we heard to be saying? When we celebrate that we are saved by faith alone, unless things are unpacked and explained, the people to whom we are speaking will hear us saying, okay, you're, you're, you're uttering your personal subjective religious choice. Now, before we plunge into our passages, I want to provide four preliminary observations about faith in the New Testament. Number one, the validity of faith in the New Testament is tied to the validity of faith's object. Let me repeat that. It's very important. The validity of faith in the New Testament is tied to the validity of faith's object. Consider 1 Corinthians 15. There, the Apostle Paul is talking about Christ rising from the dead. He's talked about the witnesses who saw him. He's, he's talked about the importance of what it means theologically and so on. And then he says, now suppose for a minute that Christ did not rise from the dead. What would follow from that? Well, for a start, it, it would mean that the witnesses who claimed they saw him were either liars or dupes. Number two, he says, you're, you're, you're lost. You're still in your sins and trespasses. If Christ died and was buried and that's all there was to it, uh, how can you possibly have any confidence that, that, 
this was a sacrifice accepted before God and, and vindicated in the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no vindication. There's no evidence that Christ's sacrifice was, was offered for anything. He just died. It was a dumb death. That's all it was. A bit of barbaric Middle Eastern cruelty. So, the witnesses are liars. You're still in your sins. The third, he says, your faith is useless. What that presupposes is that for faith to be valid, faith's object must be true. That's why the Bible never encourages you to have faith by yelling at you. Shut up. Don't ask any questions. Just believe. Believe, 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 believe. Shut up and believe. In the New Testament, the way faith is strengthened is by articulating and defending the truth. And even then it requires the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit because we're so slow. In other words, faith is not merely a personal subjective religious commitment. Valid faith, valid faith depends in part on the validity of faith's object. Which brings us to the fourth thing that Paul says. If Christ did not rise from the dead, he says, not only is your faith useless, but you are of all people most to be pitied. Your life is a joke. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, when in fact he did not rise from the dead, you're basing your life on the wrong thing. Your life's a joke. It's a farce. It's a make-believe thing. It's ridiculous. So in the first place, the validity of faith is tied to the validity of faith's object. That's why Christians are so interested in truth. Number two, saving faith is more than convinced assent to true propositions, a mere believing that. Saving faith is more than convinced assent to true propositions, believing that. Let me explain. Recently, I was in Sweden speaking at a theological conference for students from various backgrounds. At one point, my opponent in a discussion about New Testament faith was an able young Roman Catholic scholar. He asked, this has a bearing now on our reading this morning, why do Protestants stress sola fide, salvation by faith alone, when God's word expressly says that faith alone does not save? Isn't that what we read in James 2? It expressly says, Faith by itself does not save. You've got to have works. If that's what the Word of God says, why are we busy saying something different? Namely, you're saved sola fide, by faith alone. Well, it was a good question. But it's important to see that words are used differently in different contexts. My father was a Baptist pastor, and he taught me early on a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And words, quite clearly, don't always mean the same thing. You've got to see what they mean in the context. So, in James 2.19, you get a glimpse of what kind of faith is in view there when we're told that the devil himself believes that God exists. Demons are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. But such faith doesn't save them. 
They believe the right thing. They believe the true thing. Their faith's object is valid, and they're still not saved. Why not? Because such faith is merely belief in certain propositions. That's all it is. Whereas for Paul, when he insists that faith alone is enough, the faith that he has in mind involves trust. Not just belief that something, even though that that is true. It involves trust. The devil himself believes that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't save him because he doesn't trust the one who rose from the dead. And if you come to the convinced conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead, such that you can say, truly, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that doesn't necessarily mean you're any better than the devil. Because biblical faith, saving faith, faith as Paul uses the term, involves trust, self-abandonment to God, built-in repentance. It involves abandoning ourselves to Him. In other words, faith to be valid must have a valid object. That's true. That's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition. Faith to be valid and saving must also be an act of trust, of self-abandonment to the object of faith, to God, to Jesus Christ. Number three, in the New Testament, faith sometimes gathers additional flavors depending on the context. Let me mention two in particular. First, it often has overtones of perseverance. Study especially Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes called the faith chapter. And example after example after example involves Old Testament believers who not only believe that God gave them some words, believe that what God said was true, believe the promises of God, and, and their faith was valid because its object was valid, but they persevered. They trusted this God and persevered in their trusting. That is the emphasis in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses, Abraham, those who were persecuted. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction, our original faith, to the very end. In other words, valid faith in the New Testament is by definition Faith that perseveres to the very end. So I said there are two additional flavors. One is perseverance. A second one is sometimes faith means something like the body of truth. That's especially common in the pastoral epistles. You find it also in Jude 3. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The faith that is not just the trust, but the body of Christian truth, the, the, the gospel itself, this body of Christian truth that has been entrusted to the saints. And finally, within the Reformation heritage, sola fide, by faith alone, never stands alone. It's not isolated. Now we've just come through the 500th anniversary of the 
nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. I was there for the celebration at the end of October last year. And I'm sure that those were reviewed last year somewhere in the life of this church, that there are five solas. When I was about 12 or 13, I started thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. Five things that say only, you know, only this, only that. How could they be only if there are five of them? <laughs> Mathematicians may have been good theologians, but they sure didn't know much about mathematics. But eventually I grew to understand only faith, faith alone. By faith alone, we access the salvation that God provides in Christ Jesus, which he provides on the ground of grace alone. Grace alone providing the ground of our salvation. Faith, the access by which we access this grace. And this is all received through Christ alone. He alone, the God-man, the Word made flesh, the Redeemer, the substitute sacrifice, the one whose righteousness is now ours, the one who bore our sin in his own body on the tree. And we learn all of this by the revelation of God in Scripture alone. In other words, working to remove any false pride and pomposity and teaching us things that otherwise we could not have found out. And all of this, not because we're at the center of the universe, but for the glory of God alone. To God alone be glory, gone, gone, forever gone, our Tetzel's indulgences and our efforts. Now, so much by way of introduction. Perhaps the passage of the New Testament that focuses most powerfully on the theme of faith is Romans 3.27 to the end of 4. Now, I simply do not have time to treat all of this text comprehensively. What I want to say, however, is two preliminary things before we run through the argument. First, this passage comes after two crucial blocks of argumentation in Romans. The first block is Romans 1.18 to 3.20. The purpose of that block of material is to show that all human beings without exception are guilty of sin and under the righteous wrath of God. It comes to a conclusion in the concatenation of biblical quotations in 3.10 and following. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to teach such things on a university campus today? But that's the necessary background to the next block of material, 321 to 26, which is one of the great atonement passages in all of the Bible. Luther said that Romans 321 to 26 is the center of the epistle to the Romans and indeed of the whole Bible. Here we find how justification is secured. It's secured because God made him to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who turned aside God's righteous wrath. And he did this 
not only justifying us, but maintaining and preserving the justice of God while he does it. I don't have time to run through those verses, but those verses are crucial for understanding what is then said in the passage before us about faith. For one of the things that is said in Romans 3, 21 to 26 is that this righteousness from God, this justification that has come to us, comes to all who put their faith in Christ. Not to Jews only, or to one race only, but to all. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. That's the argument of the first block. All have sinned, and now justification comes to all who believe. And so you're talking about belief, faith. And in the next section, 327 and following, the nature of faith is unpacked. Are you with me in the flow of the argument? All have sinned. Sin is addressed by the atonement, and it's accessed by faith. So what do we know about faith? Four things. Number one, faith excludes boasting. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Now, before we press farther, there is a remarkable parallel between 327 to 31, the end of chapter 3, and all of chapter 4. There are four arguments that are made about faith in 327 to 31. That's the first one. Faith excludes boasting. And the same arguments in the same order are made in chapter 4 with more Old Testament background. So I'm going to be light on chapter 4 because of want of time, but I want you to see the argument, and then you can go home and think about it, meditate upon it, and, and feed your own soul with it. The first one is, faith excludes boasting. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires faith? No, because of the law that requires, uh, that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Now come to chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? For if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. The connection between faith and the exclusion of boasting is borne out in the life of Abraham. Do you see? Now, let's stop for a moment and come back to 327. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The word law can be a legal prescription, but sometimes it means principle. For example, one first century writer talks about the, the laws of warfare. He means the principles of warfare. Philo, again, a first century writer, speaks of the laws of music. He means the principles of the way things work together. Do you see? So law can be instruction. In the context, Paul is probably thinking of the kind of person who really does think he or she has legitimate boasts before God. Think of the wonderful passage in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. Jesus depicts two men going up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. And he begins to pray like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people adulterers, thieves, scoundrels, or even like this disgusting tax collector over there in the corner. And meanwhile, the disgusting tax collector doesn't even dare raise his head toward the heavens, 
but looks down, beats his breast, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this one, the latter one, went home justified before God. The other one went home justified before himself. He was justified in the sense that he was self-justified. And the tragedy is that everything he said was the truth. I thank you that I tithe. Undoubtedly he did. I give money to the poor. Undoubtedly he did. I am not an adulterer. Undoubtedly he wasn't. He was making boasts. And they were legitimate boasts. But not one of those boasts would get him into the kingdom. Not one of those boasts would give him justification before God. The most they gave him was self justification. That's a major theme that keeps surfacing in the Gospel of Luke. In one, on another occasion in, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is arguing with someone and the poor chap loses the debate at the beginning and, and then the text says, but he willing to justify himself asks the next question. He's not asking questions to find the truth. He's asking questions to justify themselves. Do, 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 do you see? But genuine faith puts oneself in the place of the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that person, according to Jesus, goes home justified. Where then is boasting, Paul says? It is excluded. If the way that you're justified is by what you do, then you will have legitimate boasts for all eternity. You might even be able to say something like this. You know, I know that I'm saved by the merits of Christ. I know that's the case. But, you know, the gospel came to me and to my brother at the same time. We were brought up by the same parents, went to the same school, went to the same church. Frankly, the difference between him and me is that um, I made the right decision and he, poor chap, didn't. The reason I'm here is I chose wisely and he chose foolishly. Oh, I, I know it's the merits of Christ that, that sorted it all out. But, but at the end of the day, the difference between the two of us is that I made the right choice. That would be a legitimate boast for all eternity. What does Paul say? Where is boasting? It is excluded. That's why there are going to be a lot of Christians in heaven singing things like, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Thou didst reach forth thine hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-swept sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold, as thou, dear Lord, on me. Where is boasting? It is excluded. And the same is true for Abraham, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Do you see that? What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, found, about, found out about all of this? Verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about 
like the Pharisee in the temple. He had something to boast about, but not before God. Self-justification, great, boast away. Justification before God, boasting is excluded. Faith excludes boasting. Number two, faith is necessary to preserve grace. Chapter 3, verse 28, and chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. Now let's begin with chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. Let's begin in the Roman side this time and work back. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. If you get to the end of your work week or your work month, whatever your pay cycle is, and your boss comes to you and says, um, I'm going to give you this gift, and then gives you your pay packet. What are you going to say? Wouldn't you be outraged? Gift. Gift my word. That's stupid. I, I worked for this. It's my sweat and blood. Every, every penny of that pay packet, I, I earned. I, I deserve it. Uh, that's, not my, that's not my gift. It's, it's my wage. Now, to the one who works, wage is not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. That's important. God justifies not the righteous, but the ungodly. If God justifies, that is, if he declares just those who are already just, then they're not receiving a gift at all. They're already just, and he declares them just. Great. But God justifies the ungodly, people like you and me. And if he does that, then it's their faith that is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That is, God justifies the ungodly. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, if you read the writings of first century Jews, it's common to find in those writings a lot of opinion to the effect that somehow Abraham deserved to be praised, deserved to be called the friend of God, deserved to be declared righteous. I mean, not only did he believe the promise, but, but there's Genesis 22 where he takes God at his word and is prepared to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. I mean, he's... He's a man of remarkable, not only faith, but works. He, he believes so much that, that he actually does something about it. He, he goes to the mountain and, and he does it. But this text says that God justifies the ungodly. In the context, it's really saying that even dear old Abraham is ungodly. And then when you stop and think about how the whole storyline goes in the Old Testament, you know it's the truth. Oh, he's a great man. But he ended up shacked up with Hagar because he couldn't believe God's promises well enough. And he lies when he's a bit afraid, so much so that he gets Sarah into trouble, not only once but twice. Oh, he's a great man. I, who am I to put him down? But that's a regular pattern in the Scriptures. There's David, 
A man after God's own heart. This man after God's own heart commits adultery and murder. You wonder what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart. <laughs> so even the greats of Scripture are not held up as models for us to emulate so that we can be saved by works. No. What does the text say? To the one who does not work but trusts God, God justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15, 6 says. He believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Faith, in other words, is necessary to preserve grace. Number three, faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles alike are to be saved. Verses 29 and 30 of chapter 3, and in chapter 4, verses 9 to 17. Let's start with 3, 29 to 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he, in other words, a tribal God rather than the universal God? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? You, you see, if you believe in one God, monotheism, then he must be the God of everyone because there is no other God. He's the one God. Whether he's recognized or not, he is the God of all because there is only one of them. It can't be anything else. That's the argument so far. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God. The entailment of monotheism is mission. If he's the God of all, recognized or not, then it's important that he be shown to be the God of all and all be commanded to repent before him. Yes, Yes, he's the God of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that is Jews, who come in under the covenant of circumcision, and the uncircumcised Gentiles through the same faith. In the Old Testament, people approached God through the covenant of circumcision. They were Jews. There were some exceptions like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah, but that's the way it ran. On the other hand, the Gentiles, now this side of the coming of Christ on the cross, they are not bound by the covenant of circumcision at all. They accept this salvation. They access this grace. They access this justification by faith, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. In other words, Christian faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles alike are to be saved. Verses 29 to 30. Now that's picked up in chapter 4, verses 9 to 17 in two points. First, verses 9 to 12. There is evidence in this point that God's, that Abraham's own experience lines up with this. Look at verses 9 and following. This is rather condensed, so let me unpack it as I go along. Is this blessedness, that is, of being declared righteous before God, of being justified, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That is, it. is it only for Jews or for Gentiles too? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Now get the argument. 
We've seen that Abraham is justified by faith. Did that happen before he was circumcised? So you had to be circumcised before you could be justified? Or after? In other words, how essential, even for Abraham, was it that he be circumcised in order to access justification by faith? And the answer is, he was declared just by faith before he was circumcised. Verse 11, and then he received the circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. In other words, Abraham is really the prototypical non-circumcised person because he was received by faith. He accessed justification by faith before he was circumcised. So how can you make circumcision the crucial test point? Do you see? In other words, the history of Abraham itself makes the point that faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles alike are to be saved. And then the same argument is laid out in the second step in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, evidence of this same point from redemptive history. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. After all, Abraham received his promise centuries before the law was given at the time of Moses, half a millennium and more. But if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. If you want to follow this argument out in detail, go home and meditate on Galatians 3, where the argument is teased out at great length. In other words, you have to remember that the law covenant came half a millennium after Moses, after Abraham. Abraham is justified by faith long before the law is given. So, faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles alike are to be saved. And lastly, Christian faith then, far from overturning the Old Testament, actually fulfills and upholds the Old Testament anticipation. Let me repeat that. Faith, Christian faith, far from overturning the Old Testament, actually fulfills and upholds the Old Testament anticipation. Chapter 3, verse 31, and chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. Look at 331. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Are we overturning the Old Testament? Are we kicking the law out? Do we nullify the law? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And the same argument, I submit, is being made at great length in chapter 4, verses 18 and following. I won't have time to pick this up now, but I want to say this. You, you, you see, the law of God did many things in the Old Testament. One of them was to portray the sacrificial system. The law of God provides the stories of uh, Passover. In, in the law of God, you learn about the Passover in which God ordains that the blood of a lamb be spilt and sprinkled on the two doorposts and the host of, and, and the, 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 the lintel of a, of a house. And, um, and everyone in that house would be spared the destruction when the angel of death passed over. And that is celebrated year after year after year 
On Passover, they look back again. This was when the angel of destruction passed over my house. We shed the blood of an animal to commemorate it. It's done the next year and the next year. It becomes one of the great feasts in Israel and the next year and the next year. And the people go through cycles of sin and redemption and sin and redemption at the period of the judges and still they're celebrating the Passover saved by the blood of the Lamb. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. Looking back to what happened. And next year and next year. Eventually the people are so wicked they go into exile. They're still celebrating the Passover. Looking back to the blood of... Back, 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 back. At what point does somebody start saying, where is this going? Do we look back to the blood of an animal and then repeat the slaughter of another animal year after year? What's really going to handle our sin? And people start saying, this must not only look back, it must look forward. And then the Bible itself begins to provide pictures of a lamb who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And in the eighth century before Christ, a millennium and a quarter after Abraham, people hear the prophecy of the word of God about the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53. So that when Jesus is finally crucified, according to John's gospel, he's crucified at the same time the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple precinct. No wonder Paul can say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Where do you get that? He got it from the law. He got it from the five books of Moses, the so-called law of God. Torah, that's where he got it. After all of those years when people look back to what God had done in that initial Passover, to the instruction that comes from the passage of time and the passage of time, to the anticipation of another Lamb of God, to the prophetic words of Isaiah and others from the Old Testament, looking forward, looking forward, all grounded in the law, Paul makes the connection. And says, Christ, our sacrifice, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So what does Paul think that he's doing? Does he think, oh, well, we don't need that anymore then. Oh, we can abandon this law. That's gone now. No, no, that's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, we uphold the law. This is what it's all about. This is the direction it was pointing. Do you, do you see? And that finally comes from Jesus' approach to the Old Testament you, you remember the words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I haven't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Don't misunderstand. Fulfill does not mean keep or preserve or maintain. Jesus is not saying, I have not come to destroy the law, but to maintain it. No, 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 no. Well, clearly he's not coming to maintain the law. There's some of the laws that have been dismissed. This he said, making all foods clean. He gets rid of some of the food laws. And, and we, we don't celebrate Passover exactly the same way today. We have a, 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 a different feast, the, the, the Lord's table that is based on it. But, but by instruction from Jesus, we've, we've, we've set aside the Passover. So is Jesus actually getting rid of the law? No, 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 no. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Rightly understood that law and all of its covenantal stipulations point forward to Jesus. 
who brings these things to fulfillment. You could spend a lot of sermons showing the ways in which the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. And Paul summarizes all of it in one quick word, 331. Does this mean, this pronunciation of the gospel, do, does this mean that we nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We uphold the law not for its legal prescriptions, but, by the, for, but for the way that the law itself anticipates Christ and finds its fulfillment in him. So let me summarize then what our passage says about faith. Genuine faith excludes boasting. Genuine faith is necessary to preserve grace. Genuine faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles and Chinese and Kikuyu and blacks and whites and Americans and Canadians and anybody else is to be saved. And genuine faith then far from overturning the Old Testament, actually fulfills and upholds the Old Testament anticipation. Do you remember the question that Paul raises in Galatians chapter 3? Having begun your Christian life by faith, will you, will you continue it by works? Is your self-identity bound up with how hard you try? Or do you continue in your Christian walk by faith? Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ and his cross work. Trust in Christ and his gift of the Spirit. Trust in Christ and his promises of more yet to come. Trust in Christ and his anticipation of the dawning of the new heaven and the new earth. By faith alone. By faith alone. Faith alone accesses the grace we need, which alone is the ground of our acceptance before God and of all the blessings that salvation brings. Let us pray. We say with one of old, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. So plant and placard Christ Jesus and his cross work before our eyes that we are drawn to him in his truthfulness, in his reliability, in his death and resurrection, in all of his shining glory, in the anticipation of more yet to be revealed. So placard him before our eyes that we are drawn to him in faith. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 694 4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.